Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Previously on Climbing Gold. Camp 4 was the center for, for climbing. Plane crashed on December 9th, 1976. And everybody was filthy and freezing up there with chainsaws cutting into the ice, hoping that they would hit the green stuff that would fly off the saw. We didn't even think about anything like a risk or anything. I remember there's just feelings of terror. What am I getting myself into? The pilot's wallets are in the phone booth located at Camp 4. Click. In the box was a kilo of cocaine and this book. The alleged black book is where all the stories out of Dope Lake start to spin off in more wild directions. A day or two after that, this rescue gets called. And there in the middle of the turn, of course it's raining, are two what look like foot skid marks. And we just were going, what the fuck? How did this guy trip here? Today, we bring you the final installment of Dope Lake. A four-part series on one of climbing's most unbelievable true stories. Sometimes life is stranger than fiction. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. This is Climbing Gold. Chapter 4, Aftermath. Do you have a favorite scene from Cliffhanger? Oh, I love Cliffhanger. I mean, what <laughs> what isn't a favorite scene from Cliffhanger? It's so classic. I mean, the bolt gun obviously comes to mind. <laughs> He's all, we need a bolt. Shabam! <laughs> it shoots the bolt in. I mean, that's cool. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the terror, like all the campusing. I mean, the scenery is amazing. You know, it's the Dolomites. It's incredible. Also, have you ever seen the the extended or like the director's cut of Cliffhanger? There's a this whole extra scene when he's in this ice cave and he impales a guy on an icicle. No, is it awesome? It's like a, it's like a bonus scene in in Cliffhanger that I discovered sort of recently because I pirated the you know director's <laughs> cut or something, and I was like, this is off the hook. Yeah, he's like fighting some guy, and he just picks him up and basically does military press, just lifts him straight above his head into a giant icicle and impales the guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, this is, everything about it is so over the top. You're like, wow. Where are you pirating stuff from these days? Dude, the pirate bay. Yar. <laughs> Cliffhanger, the 1993 Sylvester Stallone action film and now climbing cult classic. It was both over the top and featured some ridiculously good climbing footage. Two of the greatest climbers in the world, Wolfgang Gullick and Ron Kalk, served as climbing doubles. The film brought climbing to a new generation of young people lining up at the mall multiplexes right as the nascent climbing gym industry had taken hold. I feel like every every generation needs a movie like that. Maybe in another 10 years or so, they'll re- remake some other insane film and hire every main, you know, major climber to participate in outrageous stunts. Screen your eyes past the bolt guns and the bad guys toting grenade launchers that cause avalanches in the impalement by stalactites or stalagmites. Anyway, you see the perfect setup, the perfect truth, the perfect starting point from which to let an imagination run wild. Somebody came up and said, hey, I want to do a big thing that's got climbing involved in it, like a big movie, like a $100 million movie. More than a decade later, John Long He's working in Hollywood, and he's on the set of one of the Rambo films, another Sylvester Stallone vehicle. 
and a producer comes up to him. Can you like start working on some ideas? I go, well, we, there was this plane crash and we, you could crank that up to a hundred decibels and have it involve this, that, and bad people come. And, you know, that was sort of it. You know, I just took the basic thing that there was a plane full of contraband and money. I, of course, you got to, you have to sweeten the pot a little bit and it's an evil whatever. And he comes and then this thing crashes and then people, people are after it. And then there's some conflict and pretty standard. Money, drugs, assassins, conspiracies. Standard for Hollywood. But for real life, beyond improbable. Then again, there was nothing normal about 1977 in Yosemite Valley. May 22nd, 1977. And who is Jack Doran? Well, I don't know who he is. I knew him in the valley. I don't really know where he came from or anything else. He wasn't really a climber. He went to play you and something. Someone like that was kind of a hangers-on. And he, we were, I was next to him after we got our stuff out. This is climber Vern Clevenger. And he pulled out this black book and a wallet. And the black book had all these names in it. And he should have taken, it was $1,800. He should have just taken the money and put the black book back in there. But he didn't. Uh, he lasted about three weeks and he fell off going to Yosemite Point Buttress in the middle of the night. And I guess it was determined that he actually fell off the only place the trail you could actually fall off and die. Even in recent memory, has anyone died on Asar? No. I mean, really, not that I can think of in... A really long time. Like, no one that I know even knows anyone, if that makes sense, like yeah. going back pretty far. Yeah, like it's kind of, it's hard to even really comprehend it because you're moving in terrain that you're just so comfortable in and like places where you go on a daily basis. Yeah, that's really hard for me to even kind of imagine. Helicopters, I guess, would be the one thing that I feel like I can, is in the most recent SAR memory of uh, there was a helicopter crash up near the cathedral spires. I don't know how long that go. Mm -hmm. Still like many years ago. But I think mm -hmm. that's the most recent thing I can think of. Yeah, and a helicopter accident is, is a pretty different thing from walking off the trail. As night turned to day and the dual search and rescue efforts were underway, things got hectic in the valley. The two climbers were plucked off the top of Yosemite Point Buttress, while a second team, led by Butch Farabee, worked to recover Doran's body. Several of us, including myself, uh, are gotten out of bed, and by this time it's light enough, and we're able to find Jack, and he's obviously deceased. The events of that night sent ripples through the valley. For the rangers, a temporary employee of the park had just passed away during a rescue. It's a big deal. For climbers, a friend had just died in a seemingly improbable way. Everyone, both the rangers and the climbers, knew Jack Dorn had the black book. He didn't fall off the trail. He was thrown off the trail. There, and there was a, a silvering evening. How about that? 
where we all thought, what the fuck is going on? Dale connects with John Leblonsky, who had been in the thick of the discovery of the black book and the cocaine. Yeah, we look for the book, and I said, Yabo, where's the book? And he goes, I don't know, let's, let's check his tent. His tent was cleaned out, and um, yeah, the book was gone. And while, you know, it, it may seem like a pretty big leap mentally, or a suspension of disbelief to get to sort of this idea of a conspiracy or a murder. But it's important to remember that investigators were called in pretty quickly to close the case. When a lot of suits showed up from Washington and started walking around camp, clearly out of place. And this is Ranger Dean Paschal. Who's this and why are you asking? And it's just like, all right, you know, this has gone beyond the rangers that we're familiar with. You know, although there was always that tension between the climbers and the rangers, you know, Farabee was a great friend with all the climbers. There was always a cordial, trusting relationship. They needed each other. And then all of a sudden, when these Washington folks showed up, we're in a new world. You know, this is like, uh, okay, our adversary slash friends our frenemies, the rangers, you know, are no longer now pulling the ropes on this. There's something new. And so, yeah, a lot of people just disappeared for a while after that. There were no witnesses to Jack Dorn's fall. Climbers remember law enforcement officers treating it as a potential homicide and fielding lines of questions that suggested a criminal angle. So even the questions may have planted the ideas with no way to prove what happened, there was no way to prove what didn't. Everybody wants there to be a reason, a story, like something legendary about what happened to their friend. Nobody wants it to be boring. Like, but, but sadly, the, the boring answer is normally the more realistic one. Like, but, Butch, what is your, what's your best explanation for what happened to Jack Dorn? Maybe that Jack had been listening to uh, the all-style uh, Walkmans. And, uh, you know, we'll never know for sure exactly what happened. But uh, Jack fell to his death, maybe listening to this Walkman. As a result of that, there's, there are several of these conspiracy theories that, you know, the drug dealers uh, killed him and, and uh, what have you. But, you know, when you really look at it, it's like, that's pretty asinine. I mean, that won't work. So I think it's worth stopping to think through the mechanics of what foul play would look like, whether that, you know, like that's government agents or members of the cartel, like what would it actually take to sort of set up this assassination? I think one, you'd have to like stage, you'd have to like put two climbers on Yosemite Point buttress, two pitches from the top to stage a rescue. You'd have to then hide in the dark and pick the right, SAR member to push off the cliff and hope like that they weren't around anyone when that happened. Like Yeah, hope that they're not in a group of three chatting. Yeah, like like it's it's like the most ridiculous it's like it's kind of something out of cliffhanger, really. And, and it's not like you could uh pace somebody through the forest the whole way up there. You know, it's not like you could just like walk up the trail behind them. Cause surely any kind of gangster is a lot worse at following a trail like that than than the SAR members. 
It's just crazy because if you were really trying to murder Jack Dorn, you just wait till he's super drunk in his tent cabin and then just smother him with his pillow. And people would be like, oh, he just passed out and, you know, drowned in his own vomit or something. And like, you know, it's easy. You don't have to hike halfway out of the valley floor. It's just... It's just weird. Like, why would you choose the most difficult way to kill somebody? You know, it's it's too neat. It's too Hollywood, right? In in, in some ways, the uh, the idea of him being murdered by the mob or something is is the opposite of too neat. You know, it's like it's too messy. It's just too it's just too crazy. It's like it's too wild. And you know, there's basically no other evidence of any kind except that people are like, oh well, he couldn't have fallen. If I went on a SAR on a very routine walking trail. And someone that I know who was a super skilled Yosemite rock climber, like if disappeared and someone told me that they walked off the edge, I would already be super confused. And then if I had this thing in the back of my mind in which like things were already weird and there was a reason to think that someone would not want good things for that person in their future, then like, I, I don't know, like, I know that it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> But I really empathize with it because when I think about being in that headspace of like my friend has just died doing something like walking, like I do understand how it'd be really hard to fully wrap your head around that and why then your brain would convince yourself that there must be another reason. <laughs> yeah, like if someone can take the plane crash and spin it into cliffhanger, like thinking that maybe someone did come after Dorn doesn't really feel like that big of a leap. Part of the reason I bet that that generation wants to believe that something bigger and more nefarious happened to Jack Dorn is just because nobody wants to believe that the that the mundane killed their friend. You know, it's like no one no one wants to hear that the friend just got randomly hit by a car and it's bad luck. You know, they want to hear that that it was like some crazy story. You know, like like there was a reason that he was killed. It wasn't just freak chance. So, you know, it's pretty clear that there's that there's never going to be a definitive answer to what happened uh, to Jack Dorn. Like, and, and everyone we've talked to, everyone sort of bends reality to fall in line with what they believe, like ever so slightly, which is human nature. Um, you know, I think like a pretty good instance of that is Butch. Um, it's pretty certain that Jack, when he died, he's distracted. He's blasting loud music in a Walkman, uh, you know, the portable tape players from the 1980s. And I mean this with no disrespect to Butch because this is 50 years ago and like, I can't even remember what I was doing two weeks ago other than probably editing Climbing Gold. But the the Walkman, you know, wasn't even commercially available till two years after Jack Dorn died. So, you know, that's not the right explanation. I think if we're going to get closer, I think it's probably worth trying to track down the person Jack Dorn spent his last night alive with. We'll be back with more after the break. Lauren, who is Werner Braun? Werner Braun is an absolute legend in Yosemite National Park. He worked for the search and rescue team for more than 50 years and just retired a few years ago. And he was a pioneering free climber and big wall climber around the park, even though he's always kept a pretty low profile. Maybe we've even seen this classic photo of someone free soloing in Yosemite holding a boombox in one arm. Uh, yeah, that would be Werner. When I wanted to talk to him about this, we just emailed back and forth because he's got some hearing difficulties and phones don't really work that well for him. So what did Werner say when you, when you emailed him? 
Yeah, so I emailed Werner to ask him what he remembered about Jack Dorn, and he said, Me and Jack came back to Camp 4 when the Mountain Room bar closed that night. I went to sleep in my tent, and sometime later, Pettigrew woke me up and tells me we have to go up the Falls Trail for a rescue. I get up and go over to where a few people are gathered, including Pettigrew, talking about what's up and what the plan is. I was still fairly hammered and super tired and told Pettigrew I'm going back to my tent to grab my gear. Getting to my tent, I pass out and fall asleep. <laughs> he says, LOL. Uh, Pettigrew shows up again a few minutes later and asks, are you ready? But obviously I'm useless at this point in time. And he leaves and tells whoever was in charge that I'm useless and will be unavailable. Somehow Jack was coherent enough, question mark, to function on this event, question mark, and became tired or sleepy and accidentally walked off the trail. I know the exact spot where he walked off and it's an easy spot to do it when in a tired, alcohol-induced stupor. Yeah. So basically, Werner's like, we were drinking together. We were hammered. Jack yeah. Dorn should never have been on that rescue. Yeah. And then again, I he sent another email and I asked him about the conspiracy or kind of feelings that maybe it had been more complicated than just being an alcohol-induced stupor. And he basically said, poor guy should have never been on that SAR. In the early years, we were much crazier and looser out there. In the later years, things got tightened down a lot, but huge leeways were still given to a select few of us. Shit happens, as you know, in this business of outdoors, and it's far more dangerous than it ever seems. There's danger in, all caps, every step. You know, this, this story, it can feel like so much fun talking about it. Like it's this wonderful thing about an almost victimless crime in a magical time and it just could never happen today. There is also a, a dark side to this story, right? Um, it can be easy to forget about the pilots, John Gliske and John Nelson. And yes, they were doing something that was highly illegal and highly dangerous. But Gliske was also a husband and a father. Like, he had a young daughter who never got to know him. Um, when we reached out to Pam Gliske, his, his wife, she initially agreed to talk to us and, and then started having nightmares. And it became too much to even think about talking about something that happened 50 years ago. And a lot of the climbers that were involved, um, some of them didn't want to talk to us because they don't remember it fondly. Amongst some of the stonemasters, there's feeling that this money was was that that fell from the sky almost came with a greater price, like almost like it was like a curse almost. One climber who returned from a sale, he told his car, he killed his girlfriend. Another couple who served as middlemen uh, ended up getting into the drug trade, and two years later they were murdered. Several people had bad experiences trying to move the weed. A lot of these people were flying really close to the sun. This was like a fast and loose crowd in a fast and loose time. And looking back, it's hard not to see this as kind of the finale of the Stonemaster chapter, a point where maybe people moved on or grew up or just realized that they couldn't, maybe it wasn't gonna always stay the same, right? And maybe it does seem cursed, especially if you're someone like Vern Clevenger, who in the summer of 1977, was looking at a very different future from that of his fellow climbers. It's all fun and games and you're hiking bales of weed down the trail and then all of a sudden you're in a jail cell wondering, will you go to prison? Will you ever be able to 
Like, what will your life look like after this? And it, like, gets real really fast. I turned myself in. We were that fucking weird judge. I said, Pitts, who was there then, I hated him. Judge Pitts was the Yosemite judge who basically oversaw the legal system in the park. And to a lot of people, they weren't his biggest fan. <laughs> he was the guy that basically doled out the punishment for whatever you'd done wrong. And it could mean getting kicked out of the park, or it could mean going to jail. Kicked out of the park for maybe two or three weeks and came back and it was all just forgotten about. And I never, they could never tell me what, why they dropped all the charges. Hmm. And the ranger told me later, we didn't want it. He said, and the rangers, ranger and bishop, when he came to see me, we didn't want to fuck up your lives. So I kind of kept it quiet and just forgot about the whole thing for you guys, which is really a very honorable thing to have done. Really? So really, it was very intense three weeks wondering what was going to happen. But then it just completely went away. And, and the official reason for why Vern's, the charges against Vern were dismissed was that Miranda hadn't been read. You know, the sort of, it's your right to remain silent, what you say or... I don't even actually know Miranda, but <laughs> whatever yeah, that was, I know. apparently that was the reason they gave is that they was never read as Miranda rights. Yeah. Like, could you imagine just being Vern and like sitting in that jail cell doing all those pull-ups and just being like, I am totally freaking screwed. Yeah. And then one day they're just like, okay, you can go. <laughs> yeah. With the other $20,000 you already made from the plane crash, right? It's like Vern basically hit the lotto twice. In retrospect, Vern was lucky. What could have been a long-term prison sentence ended up being a new lease on life. And Vern, along with the other climbers that were around during the plane crash, made the most of it. You know, how transformative was the money from the plane crash? But when we went to Nepal the first time, that was a life transformation. So yes, you could say it was. How the other half lived in life, the other half meeting Asian people and their culture. To me, you know, it got me launched in a lifetime of photography and other ways of thinking, uh, Eastern philosophies. I probably spent a year and a half in Asia before I was done. Vern would go on to establish a successful landscape photography business in Mammoth Lakes. He bought his first camera with the money he made on Dope Lake. A lot of us made a fair amount of money. I didn't make as much as some. I only made about maybe 40. Climber Dale Bard. I bought myself a pickup truck with a little camper. Um, so I moved out of my tent and some made hundreds of thousands, okay? They made enough to buy homes and live in really wonderful places like San Diego and La Jolla and all kinds of places and have fancy cars and yeah, it's crazy. People were used to living on not much money, so a little bit of money went a long ways. Climber Mari Gingri. People were talking about their trips to Europe, and nobody ever really mentioned how they funded all this. There was never any talk about how people were employed and how they paid for all of their sort of living in the outdoors for months and months and months. But um, the plane crash would come up every now and then, but nobody ever mentioned any names. There was never any... You know, it was just a very general discussion of an event that happened without any personal stories involved. 
So it was always undercover. It was never on the surface. But if you spent enough time there, <clears throat> you would hear enough to put together the stories. For some people, it really made a, a big difference. This is Rick Akamazo. And, and Burns probably as good an example of that as ever. And with with Backer too, he had, you know, just having a little money in your pocket was was a big difference. Yeah, and one of Rick's other friends and climbing partners, Jack Roberts, he also had a pretty life-changing experience due to the plane crash. He found his way up to the airplane that uh, late winter and spring and made some money on it. I know he did enough to get enough money to go to Europe that summer. Chamonix, to be exact. It was there in the summer of 1977 that Roberts made a serendipitous connection with a British climber named Simon McCartney. The two hit it off immediately. And Jack was telling Simon all this time about Alaska. And he was telling Simon, well, you know, Alaska is like um, the Alps, but there's not many people there, and there's all kinds of unclimbed faces and ridges, and it's like Chamonix, you know, 100 years ago. They made plans to go back, to go to Alaska, and in 78 they did. The pair would go on to make the monumental first ascent of the north face of Mount Huntington, a treacherous, mile-high wall riddled with overhanging seracs and cornices, interspersed with delicate climbing. The route still has not been repeated to this day and remains an icon of the era. It was the uh, plane crash which led to you know, Jack and Simon being able to uh, climb this great first ascent. But yeah, I think it just it expanded the horizon a bit for, for the people that made some money. A lot of travel and an upgrade to the lifestyle. But how, how permanent that was for people, I mean, you still had to earn a living at some point. Like people could live for years off of what they got off of that. And, you know, over the who, who knows how many people actually benefited, but um, it changed Yosemite, I think, in the fact the pattern of people living there was changed. I didn't change my lifestyle at all. But all these other guys, they did. You know, money changed them. But money didn't change me. I mean, I think it's hard for us to even imagine what it was like. I mean, you look at somebody like Dale Barr just living in Yosemite for 10 or 12 years or something through the winters with, with literally no possessions. It's insane. It's, uh, it's so hardcore. Like, nobody does that now. Dale said that like, he did, like, upgrade. He, like, he used some of the money he bought. He bought, like, a little—he bought, like, a truck with, like, a little camper— Mm. shell and like you know like kind of upgraded out of the tent and you know that was kind of his gig and then just use the rest of the money to keep climbing forever basically um, <laughs> and that's why he's a legend <laughs> i i would bet that some of the people that maybe made twenty thousand off the plane crash but then put it into real estate and wound up basically being successful the whole rest of their life because they have rental properties and things like that i would suspect that the dirtbags that bought themselves a van and went on a couple climbing trips then spent the rest of their life looking at the the successful real estate moguls out there thinking like well they must have earned you know hundreds of thousands from the plane crash and you're like well no they were just really smart about where they invested it and what they did with the money yeah but i mean yeah it just it just goes to show that getting a little bit of money early in life 
is only really helpful if you spend it in a way that that increases future earnings. <laughs> you know, totally. Like, yeah, if, if you just buy yourself a flashy car and then smoke a lot of weed for a season, it's like it hasn't really changed your lifestyle that much. I think it's just so crazy that most of the people we're talking to, it's like it's, I sometimes forget that they're just kids at the time. Like a few of them are in college, a few of them are dirtbags, but they're all just beginning their lives. What happened to everyone? I think Jim Bridwell just kept climbing his whole life and, you know, eventually got old and eventually died. He, he didn't age well, you know, like maybe a little too many drugs, a little too much time in the sun. Yeah. You know, he just he just got a little worked. I mean, Jim Bridwell made incredible contributions to climbing and to search and rescue, and he put up roots all over the world. I mean, he's an incredible climber. I just feel like he could have done all that and maybe had just a slightly healthier lifestyle, take care of himself a little bit better, and then just had a much better second half of his life. Butch Farabee continued on. By the end of his career, he was part of more than 800 search and rescue missions. He'd go on to be the superintendent of Glacier National Park, and Ranger Tim Seneca also climbed through the ranks to run the Channel Islands National Parks. And, you know, the group of rangers known as the Yosemite Mafia, they left a lasting impression on the Park Service. John Backer died so long, unfortunately, uh, near his home in Mammoth on easy route, uh, presumably broke a hold or something, but he's just such a heroic character in climbing, and I'd certainly looked up to him so much as, you know, being a soloist in California. I was like, oh, it's John Backer. And it was, it was pretty, pretty hard to hear that he could die in an accident like that. So we're like, oh, you know, if it can happen to John Backer, it could happen to anybody. Rick Akamazo would go on to law school and ended up in Boulder, Colorado, where he still practices. Later on, he would co-found the Axis Fund, the organization that protects climbing in America. I think John Yablonski killed himself, no? Yeah, he killed himself in, in 1991. Uh, Yablonski was, like, always struggling with, like, pretty big issues. And Yabo was crazy, or, like, they would use words like torture. And I think today we would all, like, if it was one of our friends, we'd be like, he's going through a mental health crisis and having these, like, repeated moments. And that eventually just caught up with him. Yeah, I mean, I think even even the the funny stories about John Yablonski and all, all sort of the, the classic stories you hear about him so long in Joshua Tree and things, I mean, they're, they are all tinged with the darkness. <laughs> you're, like, yeah. you're like, whoa, who would do that? Or why would somebody do that? Or why would somebody be so, like, so close to their own limit? Yeah. Like, you know, like, what does it take for somebody to, to push that hard and be that close to the edge? You're like, oh, that's all just a little... Yeah. It's, it's not normal, for sure. <laughs> Mari Gingri went on to have an incredible career as both a scientist and as a climber. She wrote the first bouldering guidebook to Joshua Tree National Park, and she's been a hugely influential member of the Joshua Tree climbing community, and she still lives there today. John Long would take his natural ability as a storyteller and parlay it into a career in Hollywood, working on TV shows and films. Uh, I think Rick was telling us that you had a hand in in creating the show American Gladiators or somehow influencing American Gladiators. <laughs> I was working on a show that had a person that started that show. We ha- I distinctly remember we had a meeting and then everybody's looking at me and goes, okay, how do we make this thing like work? And I, I, what, I just told them that they were going to have to try to crank this thing to the moon with crazy stupid outfits, jackass names, just make it into the gauchest, over-the-top 
kind of faux gladiator thing you could. And, and that would work. If you try to do, try to make it like a legitimate sport thing, it'll never work. And they actually followed that. But instead of, you know, testicles, you know, it was one of the names I, I had. Instead of that, they were, it was like Siren and, you know, Thor and that kind of stuff. I, I really wanted to push it like way over the top. <laughs> Testicles versus Ovarius, yeah. <laughs> the Clash of the Titans. You're like, oh, geez. And in a wild way, Long, with his sense of story and hustle in Hollywood, would probably make more money from Dope Lake than any other climber when his concept became the backbone of Cliffhanger, which had a budget of $70 million. And he made it without ever carrying a bale of aviation fuel-soaked weed down from the lake. But as far as I'm concerned, it was just a fluke incident that affected a few people's lives, perhaps in a major way because they were able to do life-changing things like go to college or buy a house or whatever. But in the grand scheme of things, it just doesn't seem like it was it really mattered that much. And maybe, maybe that's just me. But, uh, you know, it was a freaky kind of thing because all of these government agencies involved in the thing and there was marijuana and there's smuggling and people were doing illegal things and it was, a, you know. But the thing is, if you know climbers as you do, that's the shit people do, you know, in our, in our world. And in terms of the investigation, federal authorities indicted the man who brokered the sale of the Howard 500 to the shell company, Red River Ranch Incorporated, on drug charges. They hoped that they could get him to testify against the person he'd sold it to. He did identify the true owner as a lawyer in Santa Barbara, but ultimately the case fell apart. The U.S. attorney opted to not prosecute after the airplane broker got cold feet and refused to cooperate. No one knows why. By the end of June, the Park Service completed the cleanup of Lower Merced Pass Lake. The Park Service served the Santa Barbara lawyer with a $20,000 bill for the salvage operation, but he never paid. Lower Merced Pass went back to being a seldom visited lake in one of the quieter parts of Yosemite. But the story began to grow into something more. By the end of summer, a Central Valley newspaper had reported attendees of the Easter weekend hall had printed up hundreds of t-shirts that said, I got mine at Lower Merced Pass Lake. 50 years later, you go online and dozens of vendors still sell them. Today, you can even go and buy one from the Walmart website. And so of all the craziness of the decade that you were in Yosemite and the, the, the sort of turbulent times, I mean, does the, does the plane crash in Lower Merced Pass Lake, does that even stand out as one of the, the big events? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, but and it's taken on, as you guys well know, because we're talking about it almost 50 years later. <laughs> yeah, that's a good clue, yeah. <laughs> and on a sort of a mountain myth uh, kind of a status. We'll be back with more after the break. I think a story is when there's a clear set of facts, and a legend is when there's sort of 
competing sets of facts and everybody has their version of it. It's like beyond just the story that happened and it's more like this incredible tale that everybody tells slightly differently. Have you ever heard of the Mandela effect? Like a writer basically noticed that a lot of people had this memory of Nelson Mandela dying in in prison, like during the apartheid, which of course he didn't, like he went on to be. Yeah, he became president, yeah. He wrote his book from prison. Yeah, exactly. And there was another leader of the sort of uh, movement that did die in prison, and I think people just like conflated the two people. And so there there would people like would write about like when Nelson Mandela died in prison and this guy noticed that this was a trend. And it's this weird sort of collective strange event that this writer coined the Nelson Mandela effect. And then it's supported by a lot of research where basically people can almost generate a reality, especially like small groups of people. uh, And particularly if that small group has a member that's very good at telling stories and very loud Mm -hmm. and maybe a Mm -hmm. good embellisher. And I always think of kind of John Long in that setting. That's exactly that's that's exactly what came to mind. Yeah, I was like, oh, you have a strong personality that shapes the story in whatever way is best, and then every yeah, that's what everybody believes. Climber have they're the best at forgetting. Yeah, how many times have you done a big wall and go, I'm never doing that shit again, man? You couldn't pay me enough to haul that bag up, sweat it out, run it out on Shitty Pro, all the rest of the stuff. I'm done with this. Two days later, you're like, hey, uh, what's you know, I was looking at this thing over on the east side of it. <laughs> you just forget all that stuff. It's been 46 years since the plane crash. And while there's a lot we do know, there are also some gaps that'll probably stay that way forever. On one hand, people just forget about things after so many years. And on the other, people tell themselves the same story over and over for decades. And it becomes their truth. Add to that a layer of secrecy, and you've got the recipe for an incredible legend. Every story prior to the internet was told in that oral tradition. So people who listen to the stories understood that's the way you communicated your story, too. One of the easiest ways for memory to to morph over time is to retell the same story. Because if it's something, if it's a dramatic event and you tell the story and you get a good response from that story and then you tell that story again and you tell that story again, that becomes your memory, whether or not it's what actually happened. And I, I feel like I'm particularly susceptible to this because people basically ask me to tell stories about my life all the time. And there are all these like films and videos in my life. And so I wind up with this weird perspective where It's like, I know which stories people like to hear, and I know which stories people have seen on film, but I don't actually remember the events that well anymore because they're just from random day eight years ago or 10 years ago. So it's like, you know, it's not like I actually remember the real thing. I just remember what I've told people a bunch of times and what people like to hear. And, you know, and and it's a great story. So you're like, cool, just keep telling that story. But like the actual, the the reality of the events, I mean, it's really hard to hold on to that. It's all, you know, we've we've said this before, but too, some of the people that we talked to, but who didn't want to be on tape, they didn't have the best experiences with the plane crash, right? Because they're not like, oh, I want to recount the part where, like, 
I had $40,000 worth of weed ripped off of me and like I I didn't come out on top. Like no one wants to really remember yeah, that. Yeah. Like that's not what gets brought up or like the parts well, the, those that are, are the Those are the stories where they genuinely forgot the details over time because they haven't really recounted the story many times because they don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So it's like 20 years later, they're like, actually, I forget the specifics because I haven't told anyone about this in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, oh yeah, the time I almost got murdered trying to sell a bunch of weed or something. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Like, in, in, in the, like uh, the backwoods of Fresno. <laughs> You're driving around trying to find somebody to buy your weed. You're just like, oh, man. Yeah. yeah. I think in a way, it's probably a lot easier, a lot better to remember the good parts, to imagine a bunch of tanned, counterculturalist climbers, once dirt poor, and now, like, they're almost like Robin Hood in Sherwood. Yeah, robbing from the rich and, and giving to the poor. Yeah. I mean, for sure, for sure. And like sneaking it past the man. And it's easy to forget, hearing their voices now, how young they were then. Chad Backer was 19 when the plane crashed. Bern Clevenger was 21, John Long 23. To be a teenage rock climbing dirtbag in Yosemite in the 70s meant living fully in the present. And, and everybody wants to root for the underdog, and I think that that the that generation of climbers were the ultimate underdogs. <laughs> you know, they, they just had nothing, and they were willing to risk anything, and <laughs> they're just like, let's go for it. Yeah, there's no, there's not really a villain in this story. I mean, from talking to the Rangers, it just didn't feel like any of them were too stressed. You know, none of them were like, oh no, this terrible thing is happening. They're all just, <laughs> they're all just there enjoying Yosemite National Park. And I think it's easy then for everyone to kind of root for it and think that it's this fun very 1970s thing that happened that could never happen again and we just like love that it's this if not sex then just drugs and rock and roll it was pretty remarkable that the whole story happened at all had the plane landed in another lake in this year further in the backcountry nobody even would have known about it nobody would have found it until the next next season but because it was near yosemite valley and there happened to be uh, you know the, the right kind of enterprising young climbers you know, it turned into an incredible story. I wonder if that's, like, why this story has endured for so long. There is just this sense of serendipity, like, almost like it was fate. Only the diehard climbers stayed in Yosemite Valley in the winter. And on this particular year, they were rewarded for their dedication. The band of misfits who'd foregone material possessions to redefine a little-known sport called rock climbing, all of a sudden... They stumble onto piles of riches that only they have the skills to acquire. I mean, now, that's a story. Thank you, everyone, for sharing your story, perspective, and memories with us. We deeply appreciate you and our greater community. Thank you. Climbing Gold will be back in 2023, but we're going to take a short break. We've wrapped up the season, and uh, I think we all need to recover from this. Anyway, so we're going to do some climbing, be outside for a bit, and then get back to it in 2023 at some point. If you've been digging this series, please share it with your friends. In this day and age of disposable content, we think we've created something lasting with this series and with this show. And word of mouth is still the greatest driver in our community. So if you dig it, tell people about it. That's an incredible way to support the show. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Our Zoom call technical support expert and guru, as well as host, is Alex Honnold. Dope Lake was written and produced and edited by Evan Phillips, Lauren Delaney Miller, and me, Fitz Cahal. 
Evan also provided the original score and mixed the show. Additional music from Matthew Morgan and David Swenson, courtesy of Track Club. Social media support by Jake Wheeler and Skylar Perwins. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RXR Sports and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape and Beer. Happy holidays, everyone, and thanks for listening. <laughs>